So it's my pleasure to welcome you to this first public lecture of LSE Summer School. My name is Eric Eister, and I am Academic Director uh, of the Summer School. And tonight it's my pleasure to introduce to you Lord Meghnad uh, Desai, who is an Indian-born British economist um, and labor politician. Lord Desai unsuccessfully stood for Speaker of the House of Lords in 2011 and was the first non-UK-born person to do so. He's been awarded uh, the third most prestigious civilian award from the Republic of India in 2008 and spent his academic career here at the London School of Economics. Lord Desai began as a lecturer in the economics department and uh, worked his way up to being professor uh, during the course of which he founded the Center for the Study of Global Governments which he led until his retirement in 2003. So he is currently a professor emeritus uh, at LSE. Um, so Lord Desai belonged to a golden generation of economists uh, here at LSE. Uh, amongst his colleagues counted one who was uh, a film producer and produced a film with uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, another uh, was actually featured in uh, some sort of uh, centerfold photo shoot for Cosmo magazine uh, without his shirt on. Uh, so sadly, um, none of us have had that uh, honor, and uh, these, these honors don't come to LSE economists uh, anymore. Um, but legend, there are lots of legends about what LSE was like uh, back in those days. People say that uh, colleagues would show up to work uh, late morning for tea around 11 o'clock, uh, put in an hour uh, before lunch, um, maybe another hour before it was time for table tennis uh, to begin. Uh, and that took them right up until just about uh, sherry time in the afternoon. So it's remarkable uh, during all these festivities that Lord Desai found time to write over 200 academic articles as well as numerous uh, other books. Um, amongst his books is a biography of the Indian film star Dilip Kumar, entitled Nero's Hero, Dilip Kumar and the Life of India in 2004, which he's described as his greatest achievement. His most recent book was uh, Hubris, Why Economists Failed to Predict the Financial Crisis and How to Avoid the Next One. And tonight's lecture on Do We Need a New Macroeconomics is going to follow up on this topic. So uh, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce, uh, to present Lord Desai. Thank you very much, uh, and welcome to the LSE. I hope you enjoy the experience and uh, get as much out of it as possible. Okay, now, you see, one of the things I want to, I want to do is to uh, pinpoint the fact that uh, because of what happened in 2008 with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and we have had since 2008, about seven years of uh, below normal uh, economic activity. By below normal, I mean the rate of economic activity before 2008, for about 20 years before 2008, was, uh, was growth at a much higher level across the world, both developed and developing countries. And it seemed like, uh, you know, it is going to be a permanent uh, permanent growth path, stock markets were booming, inflation rate was not very threateningly high, interest rates were low for much of the time, uh, China was growing, India was growing, and it looked like we were going to have a, a kind of golden age, uh, or what do you call it. 
Now, one very interesting thing which happens in economics is that uh, when countries and people get into a situation like that, it's very tempting to think that that will last forever. You know, in every boom, there are people who uh, get more and more used to the boom continuing. And then they have theories. I've, I've lived through about four of this. Then they have theories. And it's like, oh, you know, in the past, booms didn't you last. But this time, we have got better technology, we've got better models, we are more knowledgeable, we've got more data. Uh, and this time, we're not going to have. And again, the thing crashes. What's more, the longer a boom lasts, the more probability that it's going to crash. Now, that is a very different perspective. Uh, that's a perspective that says that change is much more permanent than constancy. Uh, a lot of economics, uh, a lot of macroeconomics, uh, has been constructed around the idea of equilibrium. Uh, equilibrium is, may, may, may be uh, defined in lots and lots of different ways. But one way to define equilibrium would be it's a situation in which unless some really fantastic new uh, evidence comes on the, on the scene, people don't need to alter their behavior. And equilibrium is where people more or less can go on behaving like they're behaving because the signals they are getting do not, do not uh, ask them, to change the behavior. In a more mundane way, uh, equilibrium in economics, uh, at least macroeconomics, means that there is sort of full employment, some kind of full employment, i.e. as many people as want to work can find a job and have found a job, and if people are unemployed, they are unemployed, unemployed for various reasons, that their personal preferences for a higher wage or a different job or fewer hours of work or whatever it is. So, in a sense, a lot of macroeconomics was built on the idea that there is no involuntary unemployment. I, people are not unemployed because they, uh, you know, although they want to work, they can't find a job. Now, that itself is a peculiar situation because, in a sense, uh, economics has gone through a variety of kind of thought cycles. But one idea is that uh, when, when, he, when people started doing economics, uh, it was sort of started in late 17th century, early 18th century. And what was happening at that time was uh, that the Spaniards had gone and conquered South America. And a lot of gold was discovered in South America and transported to Spain. And Europe had more gold than it had ever seen in, in, in centuries. And they started with a huge inflation, you know, because something like 300,000 tons of gold was extracted from South America. And, and so for the first time, or rather after about stable prices and slow, very, very slow growth for about six, 700 years, uh, Europe suddenly started experiencing rapid change in prices. Prices started rising. People were making fortunes. There was sort of much, much more uh, money around than, than used to be the case before. Because in, in a earlier days, there was a lot of barter. A lot of sort of money was scarce, a lot of barter, traditional exchange and so on. Very little trade. Suddenly, there was trade. There was <clears throat> the movement across the seas, across countries. And people were uncertain as to why things had changed. 
And they began to ask, whether something's permanent in middle of this transitory thing? Especially, why did price of some things go up suddenly and price of other things did not go up? And why did prices go up and down? What was was there was there something uh, where prices a transient, uh, as it were, phenomenon, uh, and there were values, values were permanent and prices were uh, impermanent. People started this metaphysical distinction between values and prices. It, it's kind of you know something goes back to Plato and all that. Now, the idea that you have to construct a value theory and then a theory of prices is kind of the birth of economics in uh, late, uh, late 17th century, early in uh, John Locke, whom some of you may have heard of, uh, was, uh, was a physician, he was a doctor, uh, and, and a philosopher, and a, and a rebel. Uh, uh, but he was the first person to theorize about why were prices rising. Uh, and he obviously established one of the earliest ideas in economics. Indeed, the only idea that is, that is embedded in the popular mind, that inflation happens because there is too much money. I mean, why, why that is the case, you know, we, we're still trying to understand. But the idea that inflation happens because there's too much money chasing too few goods was an idea that first articulated by John Locke. And later on, uh, it is Adam Smith, you know, perhaps uh, one of the greatest minds in economics, who, who sort of put forward a very interesting idea. And the way to explain it is following. Here you are, you are, you're observing the world, and it's very confusing because there are people buying and selling, moving around, companies being formed, companies going bust, stock markets rising, falling, whatever. Is there an order behind this seeming chaos? And here is the idea that, you, you know, when you go out to shop, <clears throat> you expect things to be there in the shops. Maybe bread, maybe pasta, maybe, maybe coffee, whatever it is. I mean, how come it is there? Who, who prearranges that when you go out to buy something, it should be there? Because the fact that a, that a sort of a can of coffee is there in that shop where you go, required somebody long, somewhere far away in South America, having taken the beans off, ground them, packed them, transported them, and got them to the shop where you haven't bought it. So the chain of, the chain of sort of logistical connection is quite, quite elaborate. And uh, it even may be that you are at that shop. You may have come from far away, and you are not always living in that area and so on. There were a variety of things. So... He, and and what, is, what is the logic of all this? And the logic of all this, uh, they, they, uh, Adam Smith uh, reasoned that basically people were, as it were, connected, interconnected, with, like, you know, so invisibly interconnected uh, by self-interest. He called it the invisible hand. You know, all economic relationships can be in, understood as a very complex set of interconnections between suppliers and purchasers, between, between how incomes are generated, how employment is generated, how people, uh, people decide to supply this rather than that good, take up this job rather than that job. And in this seeming chaos, there is an underlying order. That underlying order 
is the invisible hand. Not always benevolent because sometimes underlying an invisible hand can be very, very kind of damaging. For example, if there is a, uh, you know, if the Shanghai stock market collapses, as it has been doing for the last few days, stock markets elsewhere can be collapsing or there can be unemployment cause because in Shanghai markets are collapsing and somebody loses a job in, uh, in England. So in, there are interconnections, but they're not always benevolent. From there followed the idea later on, more by David Ricardo, who wrote 200 years ago, uh, that economies tend to acquire and reach an equilibrium. And that the people who are the forces of supply, people who are generating supply of commodities, in a sense, only generating supply because they know there's going to be a corresponding demand on the other side. Supply creates its own demand, was the, was the logic. And they, they sort of, they establish a rather, rather a harder result than what Adam Smith was talking about, was that economies always tend to equilibrium because if there was something out of equilibrium, there'd be adjustments made. Prices would fall, people would, would leave one sector, go to another, or money, money would move around and so on. And so because of this uh, tendency to mobility of capital and labor and freedom of movement and freedom of our prices to go up and down, there will be an equilibrium. Now, in a sense, it is an idea which is simultaneously very powerful, but it is not something you see out there. If you go out to look for equilibrium, it is not there. It is not a visible thing. It is a mental construct. It is an extremely powerful mental construct. Because around that mental construct might be, might be, uh, well, not just might be, but where built a series of, for example, policy things. So if there was temporary unemployment, then people say, well, how do we get rid of the temporary unemployment? Well, maybe wages are too high, so let's, let's cut the wages, and then if wages are too high, cut the wages, and you'll have more, more people being employed. Uh, and th that, that would be a policy conclusion coming out of the idea that economies are of equilibrium, there are ways of getting into equilibrium. Now, Ricardo was a remarkable man because uh, he, uh, he was a stockbroker. Uh, he was a leading stockbroker of his time. He used to buy and sell government debt. He was a member of parliament. He was a landlord. But the idea that economies equilibrate themselves is a completely abstract idea. And throughout his life, there, he had a very good friend called Malthus, whom some of you may have heard of, who is more known for population than for anything else. And exactly 200 years ago, the Battle of Waterloo was fought, uh, you know, just in mid-June. I think June 15th or 16th, uh, the Battle of Waterloo was won by the, by the British and the Germans against the French. And as soon as the battle was over, government expenditure on wartime stopped, People were, you know, as it were, disengaged, and there was, a, there was sort of a slump. And his friend Malthus said to Ricardo, see, there is a slump because there are many more people wanting to work, and they cannot work. So the, the, this is an anomalous situation. And Ricardo again and again said, there cannot be an anomalous situation because logic requires that supply meets its own demand. Whatever it is, is equilibrium. 
And again and again, you, you see their arguments that uh, Paul Malthus points out to empirical evidence, and Ricardo says, this is nothing to do with empirical evidence. This is a logical result, and therefore it cannot be untrue. So economists very early on acquired this idea that some a priori deductive reasoning is a much more powerful tool of analysis than, than some empirical data grabbing. Uh, and to this day, 200 years later, uh, equilibrium, idea the economists tend to equilibrium and do not get out of equilibrium, tends to be the most powerful idea in economics. And uh, a lot of people, you see a lot of uh, people in public commentary saying, oh, you know, economics has got to, like this because it's too mathematical. Uh, Ricardo didn't use any mathematics at all. It is purely logical, based on purely logical propositions, you can establish the idea that economies would be in equilibrium. And, you know, in the next 200 years, what you really had was partly a mathematical sophistication of this idea of uh, many, many different sectors of the economy achieving equilibrium at the same time, what's called general equilibrium. The idea which was articulated by a French economist called Leon Walras uh, in uh, in the 1870s, uh, and it's very elegant. It's more elegant, more elegant, and more unrealistic than what Ricardo was about. That he demonstrated mathematically that many many sectors will be simultaneously in equilibrium, and the demand and supply would equate all at once. And that, that again proved to be a very powerful idea. What it also meant was sort of the political philosophy behind it was as long as markets are left unhindered, unfettered, unregulated, and, and governments do not mess around too much with their budgets, the budgets are in balance and, and, and the money supply is under control, markets left to themselves will achieve full employment. With full full use of resources which are available. And almost by definition, if resources were unused, they were unused because they were not, they were not being offered at the correct price at which they could be used profitably. Keynes, it was, who uh, in the 1930s, there was a big depression, uh, bigger than what right now is, uh, especially in, in the United States and, and, and Europe. And in the middle of the Great Depression, Keynes tried to reason that uh, the economy could have multiple equilibria. One of them would be the full employment equilibrium of classical economics. But there could be another equilibrium, which would be underemployment equilibrium. And the problem of underemployment equilibrium was that uh, being equilibrium, it was a stable situation. The point of equilibrium is equilibrium is a stable situation. And being a stable underemployment equilibrium, you could not move the economy out of it by relying on natural market forces. Uh, the reason why the economy had got into underemployment equilibrium was all the things to do with market behavior. It happened to be that under a certain set of conditions, market got into this underemployment equilibrium and then stayed there. To, to, to get the market out of this underemployment equilibrium and take it to full employment required what, might, what one might call autonomous activity, i.e. activity which doesn't depend upon market rates of return. 
So it was not an endogenous activity, not activity inspired by some investor or some consumer, but something from, had to come from outside, uh, which was not motivated by prices and, uh, and costs. And that happened to be what the government would do by way of government spending, public spending, government investment especially. And then the logic was that if government came in, you know, there was underemployment equilibrium because, in a sense, potential supply exceeded actual demand. Now, what you had to do is you add to the demand that there was there an extra boost. And if you added a bit of public spending, then that public spending would multiply by people spending the money and then spending the money generating some employment and that generating some income. And the multiply process would work through and you'd finally get to full employment equilibrium. But market left to itself may not get that. Therefore, you require you required special government activity. And that began a kind of philosophical difference between Keynesians and the classical economists. Keynesians were interventionists. They were interested in using public authority of taxation and spending to move economy around. And the, the orthodox classical or neoclassical economists believed that market left to themselves will do the job. Now, this is... And Keynes... Keynes' theory was extremely influential, very triumphant. A whole new generation of economists who, who got into the profession in, in sort of late 30s, early 40s uh, were very influenced by that. Keynes was also a very clever man, and he used the word the general theory of employment, interest, and money. Because at that time, the most influential book was the, well, not book, the most influential article was the general theory of relativity by Einstein. So he was kind of using an Einsteinian expression, uh, bringing into economics. And he also brought in some, some Freudian expressions about uh, propensity to consume and liquidity preference and sort of psychological elements were woven into his theory. And Keynes' theory was also, in a sense, uh, could be could help you to model the economy as a machine which could be moved around. You know, there, there, was, there was a, you could model the economy. And giving the model economy, you could say, if I pull this lever, such and such will happen. I.e., if I pull the lever of public spending, economy will grow to a higher level of activity. Indeed, uh, within the London School of Economics itself, there was a very uh, famous uh, professor called uh, Bill Phillips, uh, and he's known for something called the Phillips curve. But he was an engineer uh, who, who took a course here. Um, he had fought in the war, got demobbed, and came here as an adult student, a mature student. He did a course in sociology, but then he came across some economics. And he could not understand Keynes, so he built an analog computer in his garage. Because he could only understand economics by making it engineering. So he built an analog machine in his garage, which showed how when, when the water flows into one thing and pumps into another thing, and, you, you could, and, and that, that uh, Phillips machine, I think it's somewhere around in LSE, and, and, and there are two or three manufactured to explain to people how the economy works. So the modeling the economy became possible more with Keynes' work. And 
Then, uh, so for about uh, 25 years uh, after the war, most, uh, most, most Anglo-Saxon economies, at least, were, uh, were run along Keynesian lines. There was, uh, you know, population was growing. There was a pent-up demand due to the Depression and then the war. And for a while, economies were able to grow at a steady pace. And if there was a slight recession, there were tools to correct it. Uh, you know, uh, we had unemployment benefits and pensions, and 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 then the government the government budget could be altered to uh, ensure full employment. 1945 to 1971, 75. Let me maybe that period. It's kind of the golden age of uh, economic growth for the developed countries. For the first time, what we take for granted became possible for the first time: steady annual growth of income, real income, more or less stable prices. You know, ex- population expanding, but not at a very rapid rate, and general improvement in living standards, mass consumption. You know, people owning cars, people owning uh, refrigerators and washing machines, and things like that. Consumer durables, as we call them, became possible even at moderate rates of income for the first time. So, in kind of middle class prosperity came to advanced economies, and then suddenly. Well, there was the problem in the Keynesian uh, model that Keynes had no theory of inflation, or Keynes, you know, Keynesians had no theory of inflation. They didn't actually worry about inflation; they only worried about unemployment. And it turned out that as employment started rising, uh, there was a pressure on wages uh, because labor union, there are very strong labor unions, and uh, that that meant that there, in the wage bargain. Uh, The unions were able to win a strong wage bargain against employers, and employers more or less paid higher wages, but passed it on to, as higher prices, and then we get what they call a wage price wage price spiral. The Keynesians at that time, although they were dominant philosophically, they didn't really have an answer to it, because if you believe this man Phillips and I saw Phillips Kerr, Phillips had found a relationship. In 19th century data, between unemployment and inflation, and the idea was very simple. This was data before any Keynesian policies had become popular, from the kind of natural cyclical uh, data of 19th century. He plotted the data from 1861 to 1913, and it turned out that the rate of change of money wages, you know, the money wage rate inflation, was negatively correlated with unemployment. As unemployment fell, wages accelerated faster and faster upwards. As unemployment rose, the wage inflation started slowing down. And if after a while it was, if unemployment was very very large, you had fall of money wages, negative rate of money wage inflation. And so people thought, "Wow, this is a great thing." Although he had done it for 19th century, it looked like a great empirical result. And people said, "Okay." We know how to control inflation. Control inflation, increase unemployment. But that was not very politically popular, and these poor Keynesians had come to do economics to eliminate unemployment, and they were very shy of using unemployment 
to uh, lower inflation. And, and trade unions are very politically powerful. They're not going to allow unemployment rise. So at that stage, the popularity of Keynesian economics began to be challenged. Inflation started rising, and then there was a quadrupling of oil price. You can't imagine. Uh, oil price was $12 a barrel, and we were all panicking. It had been $3 a barrel for, for 50 years previously. And first time when inflation came into the experience of developed economies, people began to question Keynes. And then the old idea of John Locke that uh, it's money chasing goods which caused inflation came back into a popularity. Milton Friedman, who was a very famous Chicago economist, he built a theory of that. And what that meant is steadily people started questioning the fundamentals of Keynes' theory. Keynes' theory of unemployment equilibrium was questioned because it was argued that Keynes' uh, uh, the fun foundation of Keynes' theory was that workers were unemployed because although the employer could equate real wage to marginal product of labor, that's the demand side of labor, the supplier of labor, the worker, could not choose how many hours to work because that alone would adjust the marginal disutility of labor to the wage offered. Whatever wage offered, the worker could not determine uh, the hour's work. That was provided by the employer. And therefore, there was a lack of equilibrium between those two and, and two workers. And people started arguing that, uh, you know, that's not the way uh, bargain takes place. People bargain real wages, not money wages. And uh, this whole idea of a money wage bargain causing problem was inconsistent with microeconomics. Microeconomics was all in terms of relative prices. Macroeconomics could not be in anything else but relative prices, and therefore. And steadily, one after another, a part of Keynes' theory was challenged. And so by about 1980s, because of the inflationary phenomenon, because of the monetary explanation of inflation, the economics profession transited back to a Ricardian theory of full employment equilibrium, every other full employment equilibrium. The idea was that people behave rationally, and in their behavior they so act that whatever they do is fully consistent with what economic theory would predict about their behavior. Uh, and therefore, whatever was there was equilibrium. Even before Keynes became unpopular, the Keynesians were so confident that they decided that business cycles were a thing of the past. You could not have business cycle in the economy. Economies were always steadily uh, growing at a constant rate and things like that. There's the growth. So when the crisis took place in 2008, it was completely out of the experience of anybody who has been professionally engaged in doing economic for the previous 40 years. There had not been a crisis since 1945 of the depth of what happened in 2008. In a sense, uh, there are a lot of data analysis going on in that time, a lot of econometric modeling, and if you model the economy of any US or UK, what you discovered was steady growth with very small fluctuations, which died down very quickly. 
So the economies were stable, and they were equilibrium economy, hardly very much uh, departure from that. And therefore, it, it made sense to model the economy as full employment equilibrium economies. And that is when, when the crisis happened. Nobody had an explanation of why the crisis had happened. There is a very famous story you may have heard that uh, uh, the British Queen, Queen Elizabeth, came to open a building not very far from here, the management building, uh, 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 the new academic building, I think it's called. And uh, as cutting the ribbon, she asked, why did nobody tell us beforehand that this was going to happen? Uh, and, uh, and the very, very clever economics professor who had to explain, he said, well, you know, we all tried our best, but we, all, we were all wrong together. Now, one of the things is, what, what was it that was wrong together? So one of the, one of the uh, quicker uh, sort of thing which happened, that when the crisis took place, when Lehman Brothers, you know, you know, collapsed and went bankrupt, Everybody thought, well, you know, that's all right. The economy will come back to equilibrium in no time. There's a temporary blip, a little shock, a random shock, and the economy will adjust back. And it didn't, and it didn't, and it didn't. And as I said, now it has taken the British economy something between 2008 to about 2014 to get back to the output level it was before 2008. And similarly for uh, the, the American economy and so on. Well, this kind of six-year trough, as it is called, was very unusual, was outside the experience of the entire post-war period. So we have to ask a question. Now, is this, is this something to do with theory? Is there something wrong with the theory which, uh, which uh, predicted a continuous full employment? steady growth, reasonable inflation, and somehow the economies simultaneously of Eurozone, US, UK, and out of that. And my kind of, uh, of course, there are, there are many, many people are searching for a new economic thinking. There is an institute for new economic thinking. Behavioral economics is very, very popular as an alternative to understanding uh, why economies behave the way they uh, do. My, uh, my construction of the answer is a, a slightly different one. And that is to say, let's go back to the time before Keynes came, when business cycles and ups and downs were quite common in economies. And when people wrote about economics, they very often described uh, ten-year cycles, you know, Karl Marx was the first person to locate business cycles in the economy, so there were ten-year cycles. And again, a contemporary of his, a Frenchman called Jugla, he also measured cycles. He was a physicist. He found out from data that there were ten-year cycles. And then some other people said uh, uh, th there were long cycles, long cycles of 50 years. man called Kondratiev, who was a Russian economist, he said that there, there are long cycles in, uh, in the capitalist economies. And Schumpeter, who was a very famous Austrian economist, said there were cycles because in the history of capitalism, the first, the first burst of industrial revolution 
was because of a bunch of innovations which came about, like uh, steam-powered uh, steam cotton spinning. The whole spinning and weaving revolution, uh, which happened in the 1780s, was the beginning of a series of in interconnected industrial uh, inventions and innovations which transformed the economy. And that set up a big boom in employment, in, in money-making, and so on. And then that boom got, got dissipated out after a while until an, another set of innovations, railroads, started in, in the 1840s or in the 50s. And that sort of a boom. Then in the 1890s, another boom came and so on. So the idea was that there were 50-year cycles caused partly by this phenomenon of industrial innovation and partly by demographic growth and wars and so on. Go back to your microphone. Sorry? Would you go back? Sorry. Okay. Uh, and I'll <laughs> Apologies. So uh, then the idea is, was it the case that we were just going through one of those benevolent upper phase of a cycle, and now we are into a downward phase of another cycle? And although we had stopped uh, thinking about cycles, could we not use old macroeconomics, things which were lying around uh, in the underground of economics. And so I've, I'm trying to, uh, trying to argue that you basically have to think of the economy not as a phenomenon which tends to equilibrium, but that the world is actually a dynamic disequilibrium world, constantly changing, constantly changing in an interconnected way. There's still the invisible hand, but it is not an equilibrium hand, so a constantly in a disequilibrium way. And because it is a disequilibrium world, it is much more likely to get into cycles than kind of stay in steady-state growth or something like that. And the way I would periodize it, as I was saying before, implicitly, uh, from about 1945 to about 75 or 70, 25-year phase of, phase of boom, long phase of boom. And then from 70s till about... Uh, in 70s, we have inflation and unemployment called stagflation and economies under recessions and, and hyperinflation and all that. So then we had from 1970s till about early 1990s a downward phase. Then in the 1990s, Soviet Union collapsed and world trade started expanding. From then on, we had, we had a boom till about 2008. The uh, world was much more globalized by then. And now it may be that we are into a downward phase for about 20 years, you know, and because everybody's complaining that inflation is too low. Even IMF is saying that the new normal is a lower growth rate globally, and uh, we are all projecting low growth rates, low inflation rates, and people are talking about secular stagnation. And secular stagnation is a kind of world in which we are in a downward phase of a long cycle. And we may be in a downward for a long cycle because we haven't had a really new bunch of innovations since the Silicon Valley. Uh, something really which transformed the industrial technology makes, a, makes the economy much more productive than before. Right now we are having a crisis of productivity. Productivity is not growing very well. So it may be. Then this is a guess. You know, if you only have had four cycles of 50 years each. You can't generalize that there will be a fifth cycle. Statistically, it is stupid to say, yeah, because I had four cycles in the fifth cycle. So I may be whistling in the dark, but as a way of explaining where we are, 
I find that we ought to explore this idea that there are these long cycles. And another part of the cycles, another very interesting part of the cycle, which sort of comes from Marx and which, and also with the idea of Phillips curve, that, you know, as full employment, as your economy approaches full employment, wages rise, wages rise faster than productivity, the share of wages rises, profits fall, profit rate falls, and then the people who are the employers have to react. Either they react by going to more capital-intensive technology, they go out of business. If, if, they, if they move to capital-intensive technology, unemployment increases again, real wage growth rate slows down, profit rate grows up, and, but then again, if a boom starts, you cycle around. And one analogy of that was given in a kind of a, you might be familiar with this rabbit and foxes game that, you know, foxes eat rabbits. Uh, and if there are too many rabbits, foxes are, are happy, and the fox population grows, the rabbit population declines. Uh, but uh, if that happens, after a while, the foxes starve. And while the foxes starve, rabbits have an opportunity to grow. So if, if rabbits grow too much, then the starving foxes come back and eat the rabbits. And this can go on to be a perpetual cycle. It's a very interesting mathematical model uh, of fish populations in which you have this phenomenon. And one, when one uh, Cambridge economist called Richard Goodwin made a mathematical model explaining the wage-profit spiral which goes through this kind of thing. Now, in a world like that, there's fluctuations in the share of wages in national income or the share of profits in national income is a cyclical variable. And if wages decline, if wage share declines, then you really have a very different distribution of income. What happened in the early 1970s is the wage share was rising very fast until then. And then it started declining. And the wage share has not reached the peak of 1970s even now. In, in America, uh, the, 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 the comp average compensation of a worker has not increased in real terms for something like 30 years. And when that happens, you really have a deficiency of demand because the lower-income people uh, consume much more uh, of their income than, than higher-income people. And what happened typically in the 1990s when the new boom started, the new boom was, was fueled not by rising wages so much, but, but wage earners being able to borrow because the financial markets were more efficient. You could borrow very much, uh, much more, and household debt was fueling that entire boom. Uh, and it's basically, it's when household debt became unsustainable, or rather the interest rates started rising, and all those mortgage debts became unsustainable, that the whole boom collapsed. And so you had a wage-profit cycle built inside the long-run 50-year cycle. And the third element is, comes from a, from a brilliant Swedish columnist called Wixell. And uh, Wixell was... Uh, was well, very, very, very bright man, a mathematician and socialist and atheist and all that. Anyway, he believed in the truth of Valras's theory of general equilibrium. He said that is true. That's mathematically perfect, logically true. But he said, but there are also cycles in the world. So what's the problem? Well, the Valrasian theory is built without money in it, entirely relative price, entirely barter. So money, money is a snake in the in the grass. And he said, because banks were giving loans, credit, at a fixed interest rate, 
if the rate of profit went above the rate of interest, people started borrowing like crazy because they could all make money. After a while, the borrowing got excessive, the economy boomed, inflation started, whatever it is. Banks got nervous that they had lent too much money. Interest rates went up sharply, and the boom collapsed. And again, you know, that's precisely what happened in the first uh, decade of the 21st century. We had a fantastic boom due to credit being cheap. There were, there were subprime mortgages in America, equitization of uh, mortgages, all sorts of things facilitating credit creation. Interest rates were very low. And then suddenly there was inflation, uh, fear of inflation, fear of too much growth in China. Interest rates went up. The, the Federal Reserve put them up to 5%, and the boom collapsed. So you had, you had this monetary phenomenon of bank lending, people borrowing. And another thing was uh, Hayek, another very famous economist, used the expression malinvestments. When, people, when credit is cheap, people go and do stupid things. I mean, they, they borrow money and invest them in stupid things. They're malinvestments. And cycles, crises, are a way of the economy to clean itself out. This is also Marx's view. Marx's view is cycles are natural to a capitalist economy. You know, that's the only way you can sort out the really productive investments from the speculative ones. So you need now and then a really thumping crash. The crash sorts out, uh, as it were, the healthy from the unhealthy, and then you resume growth. And so those kinds of perspectives, i.e., there are a lot of temptations for people entirely pursuing self-interest to do stupid things. And the economy can get out of equilibrium. Because as each person may think they are pursuing self-interest, the whole Gadarene behavior builds up. And that becomes excessive, and, and you may again. So my perspective would be that what you need is to revive some of the cyclical thinking, uh, which, which is, which is uh, very macroeconomic, very, very dynamic, and it's, it integrates money and uh, money and real economy uh, through credit and banking and, and flows of trade and so on. So that, that is, I would say, the answer to my question is maybe not a new macroeconomics, but we have to renovate some old neglected parts of macroeconomics, uh, and that may be able to explain us the world better. I mean, obviously all this stuff needs to be redone properly, theoretically. Some people are saying, no, we need behavioral economics. I'm not a behavioral economist. I'm too old now to learn. But uh, so my answer is that, uh, yes, there may be a variety of new macroeconomics, but one way to think about it is to think in terms of a disequilibrium, a perpetual a world perpetually in disequilibrium, and only occasionally, now and then, in equilibrium. And as long as it's a dynamic and you can explain which way the world will move, being in disequilibrium is not anything chaotic or unsystematic. Perfectly systematic disequilibrium behavior. And that may be your answer to about a new macroeconomics. Okay. Now, if there are any questions, we can... Uh, Yes, gentlemen, can back I, there. Sorry, can I ask you to wait for the microphone before? Uh, yeah. Yes. Thank you. What about gold and the new macroeconomics? Gold. Gold. Well, you know, gold, gold is, uh, I mean, uh, 
Gold is not current right now very important because it's currently a very low price. As you know, it's only $1,150 per ounce. It used to be $1,500 not all that long ago. Actually, if you, if you do a correlation, uh, you, you find oil and gold very closely correlated. Both are low right now. Uh, you see, once in a time, people used to believe strongly in gold standards. And for about 200 years, well, more than 300 years, that's gold standard. And the price of gold did not change between 1660 when Newton fixed it uh, until about 1933. Uh, and if you look at the price trends in those years, there is no, no overall price trend. There are cycles, but trend is zero over 300 years. So period of great monetary stability. That, that is true. But it is also a very deflationary arrangement. Unless there were California discoveries bringing gold into the system, with a given gold supply, economy had to be very deflationary. It's sort of like the Eurozone. The Eurozone is a perfect analogy of the gold standard. You know, g uh, countries can't print their own currency. No Eurozone country can print its own currency, right? Where does the currency come from? Well, currency in the Eurozone comes endogenously. Uh, i.e. only if one of the banks, one of the commercial bank, goes to its local central bank asking for a cooperation, I guess a collateral, then the euros can be created. The Greek government cannot independently print its own euros, nor can the German government. So the gold standard is, is, a, is a very, very deflationary system. And quite a lot of countries in, in 19th century, if you wanted to be counted as modern, you joined the gold standard. America, for example, joined the gold standard in 1873. And for the next 30 years, almost 30, 40 years, there was a tremendous war between farmers who were losing out because they were facing a price squeeze and railroad uh, barons and so on who would be able to import capital and expand industry and so on. And politically, uh, gold was very divisive in, in American history. I mean, there's very interesting, uh, interesting kind of histories of this. Uh, there's a famous uh, presidential candidate called William Jennings Bryan who say you shall not hang mankind on the cross of gold uh, because farmers are suffering due to. So the gold, gold often causes deflation. The reason why people like gold is that you know, money has sort of two or three uses. It's, a, it's kind of a minimum of exchange. It's a means of payment. And it's a store of value. And people think that money should, uh, whatever you use the money, should be a store of value. And gold is the only successful store of value compared to any other currency. So people who want a store of value, like the Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a very good store of value, but it's a lousy medium of exchange. Uh, and so this is why people still hanker after gold. But then if you want full employment, gold may not be your, uh, your preferred currency. Yes, about yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, can again, just wait for the microphone. Wait, no, the mic, okay. So, two questions. Uh, first one, do you think quantitative easing is working in Europe? And second... Sorry, what was the first question? Do you think quantitative easing is working in Europe? Inequality. Quantitative easing, QE? Quantitative easing. Yep. Oh, yeah. And second question is, like, what are your thoughts on the argument that... Sorry? What is the question of quantitative do you think it's, it's met the objectives it was meant to? Sorry? Do you think it has met the objectives it was meant to? Well, it has met? The objectives it was meant to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
the second question, what are your thoughts on the argument that tech innovation contributes to secular stagnation? <laughs> that technological innovation contributes to secular stagnation. The fact that tech innovation would displace humans or... Technical innovation contributes to... No, the answer to the second question is no. Technical innovation gets you out of secular stagnation. You need technical innovation. You need a bunching of Schumpeterian-like innovation to start the next boom. Every, every long boom has started with innovations. Right now, we are in a so-called secular stagnation. Productivity growth has slowed down because we have not had a really serious productive bunch of innovations. I mean, Facebook or Twitter are not productive innovations. Uh, you know, they, they, are, they are ways of valorizing your leisure activities, but they, but they are not, but they are not uh, productive. So... So on the first question, quantitative easing, in a sense, you know, what, what is happening in quantitative easing is uh, partly because of the influence of, uh, of the new classical economics and partly because of, uh, uh, in a, well, the Keynesian idea was that uh, if the government got in, if the economy got into trouble, the government borrowed money and spent it. And that money repaid itself by the multiplier process, and you could repay the debt. Now, several things happen. Uh, in a more globalized world, the government's ability to borrow depends not upon just the domestic market, but upon how the, how the global uh, capital market values them. So the, the rate at which you can borrow depends upon your own credit conditions. The governments become more like corporates just large corporates. And sovereign debt is no longer risk-free sovereign debt, okay? One thing. And governments basically found themselves to be uh, excessively in debt compared to what was the norm. And so fiscal policy was not used as an instrument by any of the major developed economies to get out of recession. So the idea was maybe monetary policy should be used because Milton Friedman had argued that in the Great Depression, the Federal Reserve had been very conservative in money supply creation. So what quantitative easing has done is not actually caused a boom or, or a deflation. It has basically prevented the depression from getting worse. By lowering interest rates sort of to a very, very low level, it's allowed people to roll over their mortgage debt and companies also to roll over their debt without having you know, what are called zombie firms and zombie households. I mean, one of these days, all that's going to come out when they'll have to raise interest rates. But it has, it has given the government scope for, promi- uh, for practicing an austerity in fiscal policy, which takes care of the longer uh, phase in which the economy can come back. You know, the British economy is a classic example that there was no fiscal expansion, there's quantitative easing, and it took uh, what been from 2010 to 2013 before the economy bounced up again. That kind of thing was not thought to be to be kind of permissible in the Keynesian days. People even now, I see people like Paul Krugman are saying, "This is stupid. You should go out and borrow money." The governments are reluctant to borrow money not just because of dogma, but because the nature of debt has changed. See, in Keynesian theory, debt was just something that one part of society owed to another part of society. 
the creditors were called rentiers, and the rest was us. And the idea is the majority can beat up the minority and lower the interest rate or whatever it could be confiscatory. Nowadays, the creditors are pension funds, IME, and my pension depends on that. And so it's an intergenerational problem. You know, debt is an intergenerational problem, not an intragenerational problem. And therefore, our perception of debt has changed. Uh, and so the, the, the majority view is that with debt, you have to make quite sure that you honor your debt commitments. And you don't, don't just uh, inflate away your debt. Okay. Also, also, another element is demography. This way, economics is complicated. The Keynesian boom was a time when population was growing, the baby boom and so on. Now we have a much more aged population. And a lot of people are interested in stability of uh, 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 the viability of their debt contract. And so governments have to be orthodox about, about debt commitments. Yeah. Uh, now there's somebody else up there. Weren't you going to ask that question? Yes. Have you got a mic? Wait for the mic, please. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to you. Yeah. Oh, um, you were saying that cycles and booms and busts, um, we should look at it as a more natural part yeah. of the macroeconomy. And I, my question is, does that mean that the Keynesian optimism that uh, we can intervene to make sure that these, uh, these uh, changes in the economy don't hurt people, so that like, massive changes in, let's say, unemployment don't um, hurt a lot of people, does that mean we should lose all of that optimism that we can't intervene in the economy and that we should just take these cycles and the accompanying uh, hurt to people as natural? Is there any hope but for no, intervening? You know, I, I don't want to use the word natural because or, you know, more normal than we think to be. It's not a, uh, it, it is an interesting question. Not so much that Keynes' theory was correct, but why did it work? And why did it stop working? Think about it that way. You know, in a sense, economics is not really like physical sciences. It doesn't have constant laws. Some things work sometimes, and we're still trying to understand why they work. You know, one of the questions is, why, why was Keynes so successful? And why, why were Keynesian policies so successful for about 25 years? And uh, why did they stop being successful? Now, I've lived through that. My, my, my career has, was defined through early years of Keynesian economics and then, you know, battles with monetarism and so on. And, you know, I'm still trying to understand well, one of the things was this very, very interesting combination of demography uh, uh, and, and sort of a, uh, a built-in excess demand for durables and so on. Those durables were coming in the market very cheap. You don't realize how how thrilling to have a television was in the 1950s. Then got color television, fridge and washing machine and dishwashers became usual, central heating, air conditioning, uh, and then we had, we had record players and then they became CDs and then, you know, and all those things kept on feeding and that was one of the reasons why consumer demand kept on thrilling up. There was, in a sense, saving through pensions to make the make the boom viable. And then suddenly population started aging. Industry moved abroad because of the higher cost due to oil. And the manufacturing collapsed. It's, I mean, in, a, in, in every um, developed economy, the contribution of manufacturing to GDP used to be around about 25%. Now it is 
Uh, and that meant that the bulk of the ordinary working class, which had good jobs, good high-paying jobs, didn't have those jobs anymore. And when you move from manufacturing services, your wage falls. And which is why there is, there is wage, the weakness of the wage, uh, average wage in American economy is because manufacturing has gone abroad. You know, and so the, these sorts of things have to be explained. And so, you know, a diagram is a diagram. And if I give you mathematics, mathematics is always true. But how the mathematics relates to the real world, that is a complication in economics. You may say consumption, but we mean that's something different 50 years across. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think this is pathetic. So far, only men have asked questions. Well, what can I do? Yeah. Uh, with reference to your speech, I'd like to ask two questions. Um, when you said we have to take up and down cycle phases as given, so should we then define a new objective, so not constant growth or overall welfare anymore? And the second, what would that... Uh, sorry, again, is, um, if we take up and down phases as given... As natural, it somehow refers to, to the first question. As given, yeah. Uh, should we define a new objective then, and not constant growth and uh, overall welfare anymore? The question is, if, if there are cycles, then we, can we take constant growth as no longer uh, possible? You know, constant growth was a, was a very nice thing which happened for about 30 years. Hasn't happened since. You know, or rather, uh, okay, let's say we take a 50-year period when there was very, cycles were very short. So, uh, but the bulk of history is not of constant growth. Yes, growth and cycles were together. Cycles are happening around a growing economy. So over the 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, we've had growth, tremendous growth of per capita income, but with cycles around it. So, yes, if you smooth things out, then there is growth uh, across 200 years. There is improvement of welfare. But it is not, it is not reliable at a constant level. There could be ups and downs. Okay, and so, so you may have to have a, a, a sort of... A, counter-stabilizing uh, instruments. All right, all right. You know, I mean, for example, what you have lived through, uh, the, the, the big shock from 2008, 2014, nobody uh, of your father's generation lived through. They never had a six-year uh, downturn in a cycle. And, uh, and it's very, very likely, and I don't want to depress you, but you'll never have the kind of living standard growth that your father had. Mm -hmm. Happens. You want okay, too late. It's too bad. You yeah. want too late. I can't help it. Uh, uh, sorry. Um, I got there first. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> second, this. Um, okay, I understand. But uh, what would that now mean, um, especially for financial markets or labor market institutions, in terms of regulations? Well, see, we are, we are right now struggling through financial market reform because uh, we are trying to understand to what extent our troubles were normal cycles 
or exacerbated by the financial market misbehavior. Now, interesting point is that there have been financial markets forever, and each time financial markets have been blamed for crisis. You know, the Glass-Steagall Act, which is very famous in America, which has to do with bank regulation of bank behavior, because banks were blamed for the 1929 depression. And they said, we'll never again allow this. We'll make a legislation. Banks will never misbehave. Of course, you know. So each time some really big cycle happens, we try to have institutional change. I mean, the whole uh, installation of Keynesian fiscal policy happened as a result of the Great Depression. Uh, so that was a big institutional change. It was endogenous to the Depression. So I think as, as we go through different cycles, we will have institutional change. Now, labor market thing is very interesting because, in a sense, the, across the developed world, the big trade unions have shrunk. You know, because big factories are no longer that. You know, a lot of employment generation in the, in the developed economies are mainly by small and medium enterprises. Uh, the big corporations are wealth generators, but not employment generators. The employment generation is through SMEs. Now, the SMEs, I, I think is, you can't actually unionize very well among SMEs, as you can in a, in, in a big factory situation. So labor market institutions will change, especially, for example, we will see, and we are seeing much more, much more self-employment, much more startup self-employment, and people are, you know, there's a very interesting court case going on, uh, in, I think in America somewhere. If you have signed a contract with Uber, are you an employee? Uh, because if you're an employee, then certain other by conditions apply, and you can't do X, Y, Z. And this person says, but I'm not an employee. I have contracted with the Uber to supply services. Uber is not employing me. And so the notion of employer-employee relationship may itself have to be modified because there's a different technology. You know, when factories came, they were a different technology, and we began to think of the rank and file of the industrial workers. You know, all the left had the image of marching, workers marching, you know, thousands of them. They aren't that anymore, at least not in, not in developed economies. So labor market institutions will change. and become, It will have to be much more flexible. Contracts will be much more flexible. Yeah. So, sorry, I mean, you should have given it a... <laughs> yeah, just, just give. yeah I'll, 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 I'll come to that, but, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't you think that um, if uh, that, that government spending and, uh, and monetary policy like basically pull the economy out of equilibrium in a sense that it uh, like especially monetary policy if you set interest rates which is the fundamental price of funds that that like induces misallocation of capital so that that basically to infinite to infinity pulls the economic economy out of equilibrium. No, I mean, uh, monetary policy allocates capital. Is that the idea? Yeah, that if you have a central organization like the Federal Reserve Bank or the Bank of England, uh, which sets the interest rate, that an interest rate, by definition, if it's set by human mind or by human hand, that it's not subject to supply and demand. So it's always wrong, isn't it? interest rates? No, no, interest rates is, a, interest is a, you know, okay, interest is a monetary phenomenon. There will be supply and demand for credit. 
And for example, if you have a central bank which can generate liquidity in the system, then it can keep an interest rate low for a long time, as we have under QE. Right? Because that is a massive supplier of, of, of somebody can, in, in a sense, somebody can print money. And by printing money, they can buy assets. By buying assets, they can keep interest rates low. That's what's happening right now under QE. Uh, so what, 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 what then is the problem? Yeah, that basically an interest rate is the price of borrowing money, and, that, and on the basis of that, people assess if an investment is going to go uh, to be profitable or not. So if you set interest rates artificially uh, instead of using supply and demand, it's by definition, like, isn't, isn't yeah. it wrong that it misallocates capital because uh, interest you know, rates I, don't? Okay, I, I, okay. You know, the, you're trying to think that there is, a, there is somewhere a true interest rate set by true supply and demand, and somebody's giving it artificially low. Now, if that was the case, then obviously some sort of disequilibrium uh, uh, will build up, right? For example, right now a lot of people are saying that we are going to have a big asset bubble because interest rates are very low, companies can borrow, Right now, many companies are not doing any real investment, but they are going into mergers and, and, and purchase of each other's corporation or buying back their equity and so on. Now, it's quite likely that, it's, that this is a merger and acquisition activity is a huge bubble, and that bubble will burst when we will, we will get back to some kind of a clarity in the money market. But right now, the government uh, agencies have been able to keep interest rates low. The idea is that if interest rates go higher up, the economy may deflate again. So there, there is a bit of policy move. You know, there is a bit of a policy maneuver. It, it is not that there is always some, some, some equilibrium interest rate out there in the system, and we can't escape it. I mean, okay. it's, this is one of the disputes between classical economics and, and, and Keynesian economics. Is there a natural interest rate out there, which is equilibrium? Yeah, but personally, I'm very interested in Austrian economics, and what they basically say is that if you have supply and demand, oh, and that's yeah. subject to the interest oh, rate, sure, then absolutely. if there is no but profitable... But you see, a lot of Austrian economics is uh, non-money, is real terms. I've, I've done Austrian economics. I mean, it's sort of a, it's a, uh, the Hayek, Hayek I, I mentioned Hayek, uh, who, who did believe in that, but it's possible to have a long-run uh, disequilibrium maintained by, by policy manipulation. You may have to pay a price for it, but, you know, half a generation is gone by then. Perhaps we should just uh, take... Lady back there. And, and then you, okay. Uh, lady back there, Lorraine, yeah. Uh, it just, I want to ask an opinion. So you said we are, the economy of the world is right now on the downward uh, part of the cycle. However, I feel the developing economies of India, China are growing much more. Like, yeah, are growing I mean, much yeah, faster. The, I mean, China is growing less at a slower rate than it used to. India had a low growth, now it's sort of going up for a bit. But, you know, in terms of the global economy, these are not really very large. I know people are the third largest and so on. Uh, you still have, uh, not in purchasing power parity terms, but in ordinary foreign exchange terms, the developed economies are still the dominant thing. And uh, there's no interaction between those economies and this. And no doubt over time, China and India and Vietnam and so on will take a larger share. 
There is, see, they are not at the technological frontier. There's still a lot of technology catch up to do. And they have a lot of labor resources. And with the labor resource, they can catch up. With, they, they can increase the productivity of the labor because the technology is all there. Whereas the, here, we are at the frontier of the technology, and we need new technology to increase our productivity. So there, there is a catch-up element available for the developing economy, which will, which will give the economy a little bit of something. But the majority of it is going to be in secular stagnation. So uh, what I mean, so as of right now, in order to you know, start new jobs, are these economies a better place to gain more success than the already developed economies? Uh, yeah, but you know, there's, 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 there's so many cross interactions that you can, you can work on Chinese economy sitting here. You get a better job, a better pay. Yeah, this gentleman here at the front, the gentleman. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to know the reason behind the housing bubble of 2008. So, what was the reason why the Lehman Brothers crashed? Like the housing bubble of 2008. What was the main reason behind it? I mean, I, I don't understand. What was the housing bubble? Housing bubble, housing bubble of yeah. 2008, why the market crashed and Lehman Brothers crashed. So what was... He wants to know why the... Why yeah, housing, housing, housing bubbles happen, yeah. Yeah, so why... Why? Well, you know, in, in a sense, again, it, it is what is called the, the Excel hike phenomenon. Uh, people consider that the rate of return to purchase... purchase owning a house uh, is high because everybody believes that houses always go up in price. Okay? It's a universal belief. If you buy a car and if you sell it six months later, you don't get your original money back. Everybody believes if I buy a house, I'll get more money later on. Partly because it's land scarcity is a very important part of house price. You know, there is not the house, it's land. Now, Land, land scarcity will enhance the replacement value of the house, but it may not do at the same rate at which prices are going up, because prices are going up with expectations. And so bubble is caused when house prices are rising faster than as the equilibrium rate at which it will be rising. If credit is cheap, people will go and do foolish things. You know, I mean, it is, this, is, this, this is a great Vixel hike uh, thing, malinvestments. Uh, and the UK economy has been through about five uh, housing bubbles in the last 50 years that I've lived here. And again, people never learn. They always go out and you know, want to buy a house. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, if, you, if you want to buy a racehorse, bank won't give you money five times your income to buy a racehorse but they will to buy a house. It's very irrational behavior. How do banks know the resources are not more profitable than, than the houses? But somehow there, there, is this, there is this fallacy of concrete. You know, houses are solid, you know. They must be all right. The complete, yeah. It's kind of, but uh, governments conspire to make you house owners. They give you mortgage concessions. And, because the politics of house owning is very powerful. You know, uh, everybody wants their voters to feel that they are owners, owners of house. And uh, when I was when I came here uh, at the ripe old age of 25, I lived in 10 different locations, all of which were rented. I came in, people said, 
You can't rent, you must buy, you must buy. There are so many incentives for buying, you know. And in a, it's a, you could easily construct an economy in which everybody just rents. And the, the money they would have otherwise spent on house buying, they could buy equity. And they might be better off. But house allows you to enjoy housing services and have an asset, uh, uh, you know, sort of appreciation, which is why they're very popular. I mean, the whole uh, um, subprime mortgage uh, arose because the Clinton administration passed the legislation that people who would not normally get credit to buy a house should be allowed to borrow in order to kind of make it more inclusive. And if the people ended up buying houses who had, who had no income and no prospect of paying back, except they thought, well, when house prices go up, I'll, you know, I'll pay. So that is, that's the kind of bubble you can very easily build. There's a bubble going on right now in London. So maybe, maybe we should Join take um, one last question. And yeah, for yeah, the rest sure. of you I'm, who I'm, don't have your questions answered, we will have a reception there, upstairs afterwards. Up there, there is a lady there. So let me just finish saying, after this question, we'll have a drinks reception upstairs on the fourth floor. And so for those of you okay. who don't have your questions answered, you're free to okay. uh, ask them in uh, more collegial. Uh, you may not want the reception to be spoiled by me being around. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I believe that is this underlying idea that everybody can be can you every hold country. It, you know, like Frank Sinatra, can you hold it close to your mouth? Okay. Yeah. Every country can be wealthy and growing at this point. And I just wanted to know if you believe that poverty is not a, um, is possible to be extinguished. Do you believe that countries can all be wealthy at the same time? <laughs> Do you believe that all countries can be wealthy at the same time? Do you believe that uh, poverty is not part of capitalism? The question, do I believe all countries can be wealthy, right? You know, over my lifetime, many countries have become much more richer than we ever thought possible. You know, the report of the UN, one of the UN bodies the other day, yesterday, that something like 800 million people have come out of poverty in the last 20 years, right? And, and if, you, if, you go in, uh, if you go to, say, China, I was first in China in 1973, and I've seen a China, very, very kind of poverty-stricken China. Every time I go back to China, it's richer and richer and richer. And it's very widespread prosperity. And not universal, but widespread. And the, the two questions is average income will go up. That at least one of those things we have understood. That, you know, we, we understand something about how growth happens. It may not be steady, it may be cyclical, but we understand something about how growth happens. We also understand something about how the fruits of growth can be equitably distributed. But we don't really know how to prevent inequality from growing rapidly. I mean, we know, but the politics of it is such that it's very difficult to have a redistributive policy get government elected, parties get elected. So, uh, 
at least we have learned that, uh, yes, uh, it is possible for countries to get uh, prosperous. And there are policies for it. Some countries have successfully got prosperous. Others are other way. Uh, but uh, it's, it is basically how we can have uh, elimination of poverty and moderate inequality. That is, the elimination of poverty is easy. Inequality is a, is a more challenging thing. But let me give you an example. In 1965, Henry Kissinger said that as long as India and China can feed themselves, the world will have no problems. So in 1965, Henry Kissinger, the man of infinite wisdom, did not visualize China and India growing. All they could have to do was to feed their population, and that was it. That, that is how in, in the 50 years we have come. And now China is an industrial giant. So yes, growth is possible. Okay, so Economics is not a dismal science. <laughs> well, clearly, that's the place to end this lecture. So for those of you um, who, again, didn't have your questions answered, please come join us on the fourth floor and okay. ask them in person. And let's all thank uh, Lord Fourth floor or fifth floor? Fourth floor. Fourth floor. Thank you. Thank you.